Today we have Kim Cook, Head of Arts and Civic Engagement for Burning Man in San Francisco. Burning Man, wow, just imagine what this great nine-day co-created city in the desert might teach us about city making. She talks about the 10 principles of Black Rock City and the importance of learning by doing, or the duocracy, as she beautifully terms it. Hello, Kim. It's a great pleasure to speak to you across these many time zones. Now, I deeply admire your approach to civic engagement as the very foundation of super resilient projects. And I would love to know a little more about that. Thank you. And I'm also very attracted to this idea of how do we look at something over time and see that the name changes, but the essence perhaps does not. You know, I grew up with a woman from East Africa and she had a party every Saturday night that could arguably be called an immersive environment, you know. And so, you know, this idea of placemaking we have language for, I would say in the 90s, we were talking about social enterprise and you saw nonprofits like the Boys Choir of Harlem in New York acquiring property and looking at real estate as a way to drive earned revenue to support social good. You saw the Dance Theater Workshop and David White in also in New York sell the air rights above their building, same thing. You saw Ben and Jerry's, you know, sort of ice cream stands for youth development programs. Like people were trying to think about development and tools of development and social good. And then you get to 2000, circa 2000, and you get the publications by Richard Florida about creative cities Mm. and Charles Landry, right? And Richard Florida is kind of observing the data of the creative sector and what happens to cities and how they can attract and retain talent that make them competitive for the future. And Charles Landry is looking especially at Um, post-industrial cities like Nantes in France that repurpose old manufacturing and other culture, what he comes to think of as cultural assets in new ways. And then you get the work of uh, La Machine and Francois de la Rosière creating these incredible architectural puppets and experiences. And so moving forward from, from this creative economies theory, which in my experience and I, and, I, and I worked in a few different cities around that era, everyone wanted to import that, like an overlay, like they wanted to run, get some creative economies. Everybody wanted to be the new Austin with South by Southwest, you know? And yet th- they kind of missed this, this understanding and retrieving of that which was already there and how you amplify a signal mm-hmm. to make a distinct identity of a place. You don't import a strategy to do that. And then in 2010, Rocco Landisman joins the National Endowment for the Arts. He uh, commissions the brilliant um, uh, Anne Marcuson and uh, Anne Godwa Nicodemus, and they write this paper on creative placemaking, which now positions that language, which pre-existed, but as central to the strategies around place and development and creativity. 
and the uh, Rocco assembles the top 14 foundation um, leaders and he asked them to also create a pool of money. This creates Art Place America. And now we have 10 years of, of explicit practice around this idea of placemaking. And the book you refer to uh, was put together by Kara Courage and uh, has seven sections with each their own editors. Um, about 10 years of placemaking, and that comes out at the end of this month. And I was able to contribute a chapter, which is thrilling to me. Um, the point, I think, around engagement that you're making is that whether we're talking about social enterprise, creative economies, or creative placemaking, there are a few risks, right? One is that we become extractive and appropriative. We we find the culture, we define the culture, and we ornament ourselves with it. We dress ourselves up in it, but we didn't actually look at use value for people who live there. We just looked at economic value for the investors mm -hmm. and maybe increasing the tax base for the municipality. So this uh, the economics of the whole thing needs to be carefully thought about. And often, you know, developers are incentivized by municipalities because maybe they drop the regulatory environment conditions or, you know, so someone can build higher than a standard allowable or they, you know, they they forgive some permits or some fees or they have requirements that some percent of the overall capital budget goes towards some kind of public amenity or art. And this is why I think you get where it's an afterthought, because there's no real value proposition to the developer about the integration of the creative community, the artists, the participatory journey at the inception of the project. But actually, I think it's possible to repurpose and redeploy even very key elements of infrastructure like sidewalks with creative participation from the beginning. There's a woman in France named Maud Lefloc who has a Polau, um, and she is an urban planner who's been working with developers to try to say, let's look at development the way an artist looks at site-specific work. You know, let's be here together with artists in residency and then evolve the project. Mm -hmm. There's another really brilliant woman named Dr. Mindy Fullylove, who is a psychiatrist and who looks at the sort of trauma over time to place and how to reconnect and sort of um, sort back out what she refers to as root shock. Um, so I think that there's some really beautiful theorists, even though I know that you've said that I like to be right in the doing of things, which is true. Mm. But there are other there are practitioners who are exploring this quality of 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 making it possible for developers to see the advantages in the beginning. And the advantages at the end, even if you are only look at economic value, have to do with the uh, uh, the sort of uh, unique identifiers and differentiators of your projects that make you competitive in other places, make the cities themselves attractive to people to live there or to come and visit there. So there's both a sort of talent, you know, brain gain and tourism sort of argument there financially. And then for those of us who are really interested in the social benefit and addressing the fact that much of our public space is now governed by 
concerns of security and risk mitigation and um, you know, sort of erasure of homeless population rather than addressing of those issues, then how we think about creative engagement and the building of our public spaces so that they can be places to celebrate and not just places to celebrate or mourn. Um, this is really, for me, fundamentally, powerfully important beyond any kind of argument about economic return. Yeah. Well, I, I, listening to you, I, I was, you know, the few conversations we've had, and particularly I remember the first thing I ever saw of uh, from a Burning Man point of view was being shown around your building in San Francisco, and I was shown uh, a particular drawing that was of all of the things that had been left behind at the end after everything had been cleared up and there was this i mean it was incredibly beautiful from, from a distance like a like almost like a, a a piece of sort of kind of you know sort of medieval lace and then going in closer you saw that every little thing whether it was an almost an iron filing here or a nut or a bolt there or an old bicycle had been documented and i think that attention to detail in in everything you're talking about i find you know, incredibly powerful. And I suppose what I want to ask you now is in a so in a post-pandemic time, now that we have been sitting at home, kind of wondering what, well, particularly in Europe we have, thinking about, you know, what it might be like to be in the city, to be in a, a world where, you know, there are more, where there are chance encounters, where, uh, you know, sort of unexpected things happen, where there is, you know, the opportunity to be sort of pro-social at kind of scale. It seems like so many of things of what you're talking about are the elements that are going to help me fall back in love with the city again. And particularly, you know, I think those those small iterations that you're speaking about sound like the kind of small experiments that we're going to need. And I wondered what you were thinking about in a post-pandemic world. Is is this this view of place making? Do you feel that developers are going to be much more open minded to the kind of experiments that you're speaking of? Do you think it's going to be better? It's a good question. The uh, the piece of uh, art that you're referring to is our matter out of place map, MOOP map, and it oh. is uh, points to another one of the core principles of Burning Man, which is leaving no trace. Yeah. And the uh, community, we have no trash cans. Yeah. And everyone, you know, packs it in, packs it out and collaborates on leaving the desert the way that we found it. And then afterwards, we have a team of hundreds of volunteers that stay several weeks in the desert and do comb really literally with a fine tooth comb to find any other leavings. And then the map is created that shows where they did end up finding things so that people who were not as successful at the leaving no trace experiment can be contacted and trained and have a conversation about how they can do better next time. So this comes back to this participation, learning, the involvement of volunteers and a conscientiousness that the space is ours collectively. And, you know, it's interesting to think about public space as overly privatized and therefore not belonging to me 
or as sort of, you know, overly governed. And so I have no freedom in that space. And so when you ask the question of a post-pandemic environment, like what will be the things that we can do or that will be meaningful um, for social connection, it's a it's an intriguing and delightful question. And I'm reminded of a project I wish I could name the artist behind this, but it was something I saw so long ago and then I never, I didn't pin it to figure, to remind myself where I saw it, but it was in Germany in some small town where they put out wheelbarrows with flowers in them and um, geolocating uh, technology. And then they watched where people moved the wheelbarrows <laughs> as a way to find out where people thought flowers should be. And I really feel like the devices we can use do not have to be overly complicated, but rather very um, simple and delightful. And uh, I hope we can come up with some of those kinds of things together. Oh, I, 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 I love that. And I think, you know, what, what is... What is powerful about it, you know, everything you, you talk about here is that I think, you know, it, it, it lives or dies by whether whether people take part, whether they make it their own, you know, like those first stories of how how Burning Man began. It was a tap on the shoulder. It was a quiet word. It was a few people that told a few people more and it grew organically. And I think that's so much the power of what you're talking about here, things that grow organically. I think that thing you say, I remember your word, duocracy rather than democracy, which I, I, I love that. And tell me then, there was a point where, because I find, of course, in plan and particularly in any student of architecture would enjoy the fact that, you know, so many utopian ideas of city will often begin as circles, but also fundamental to your city are your 10 principles, aren't there? There are, there, are, there are guidelines, there are values behind everything you do. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, I think it's important to not try to create a theology out of it. You know, it's that, that uh, over time, people from all around the country and around the world were coming to Burning Man and they were experiencing something so outside of their normal reality, but not in a sense that it felt like it took them outside of themselves, but more in a sense that it brought it back to themselves. So many people refer to going to Black Rock City as going home. And I think the home is not so much the literal place as that they find that self inside of themselves and the ability to explore what that's all about. So it isn't a, a, a kind of imposed system, but when people came and they wanted to think about how to replicate and how to create other events, and today there are over 90 other Burning Man events around the world in more than 30 countries. So, you know, there were questions about what is this and how do you do it? And again, Larry Harvey chose not to create a dictum, but rather a reflection and he went uh, to Mexico City, actually, and he sat and he thought and he reflected on what is it that was occurring. And so from that came the 10 principles. The principles include gifting, participation, um, civic involvement, communal effort, radical self-reliance, uh, immediacy, decommodification, all of these 10 principles 
refer to his observations of what was taking place, that if you held to those things in another context, then you could replicate the human experience that people were wanting to have. Yeah. And tell me then, in terms of how that's propelled your community engagements above and beyond, because I remember you telling me about a project with Google where there was, you know, it, it's, you know, it's a city, city making project, but particularly it was in the community engagement and the storytelling that kicked it off. And I thought that was very interesting, beginning with something that is by its nature so involving and isn't imposing a big story on people. In fact, the story grows of every conversation. And I wonder how that began and how that relates to those 10 principles. I would be happy to do that. I think as I, as we were talking about the 10 principles and the idea of a duocracy, one of the thoughts that occurred to me is there are two great movements in the end of the 20th century culturally, Burning Man and hip hop. And there are others presumably, but those two movements I've been deeply involved in now and had a chance to observe. And one of the things they have in common, and in fact, they have many things in common, although they appear on face to be quite different, is that there is more value based in what you do than what you say. Yeah. So this kind of demonstration by doing and then iterating is the same in hip hop when they do when they dance in a circle and they throw down in the circle that you're improvising and trying to top yourself. And at Burning Man, you know, we improvise in a circle and year over year, 7000 volunteers help build that city and mm -hmm. another 30,000 participate in building theme camp experiences for other people. So as we reflect on our craft, if you will, of working with people in places outside of the context of an event like Burning Man, this ability to demonstrate through our actions mm -hmm. what our intentions are, I think is essential. And so in terms of the project that we had the opportunity to collaborate with Google on and the city of Mountain View, there were certain design parameters that were wanted by Google in terms of fun, playful, uh, you know, sort of emblematic of the spirit of Google and the people who work there, interactive, innovative. And on the city part, they wanted for Google to create a more than a workplace amenity. They wanted it to be a place for locals to gather. They wanted people who live there to feel a sense of ownership. And so if you start with listening, whatever work you're doing, people are gonna tell you about their aspirations and their hopes and dreams. And those become the sort of fundamental design parameters. And then, you know, how do you translate that so that the people who live there actually can influence the outcome in authentic ways. Yeah. And we all have done public hearings. We've all done public hearings, you know? Yeah. I mean, I was the president of the Arts Council in New Orleans. I definitely did public hearings, but those are not well-designed experiences. They're really often, you know, sort of just gruesome opportunities to sort of stand up, tell your story and then defend it while the grievances that may or may not have something to do with your project get aired. So how might we as humans invite other humans who really authentically should have the opportunity to weigh in on the built environment 
without turning it into just an unfortunate clash yeah. of needs. Yeah. So one of the things that we did was we held a storytelling session in a coffee shop that had a second floor and they let us use the second floor in the evening. We did it um, in Mountain View and we invited people to come tell stories about what they did when they were kids and what they loved about it. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, people don't know exactly what or why. And we let them know this was a part of a public art selection process and people wanted to be able to weigh in on that. And when, you know, we got there and people arrived, we had people from early 20s to 70s. We had local residents that had been born and raised and people who had moved there for work. And I was very transparent that, you know, about my dislike of public hearings, but my desire to actually know what yeah. they wanted, but that I also, if it was overly literal, mm -hmm. that they would tell me they wanted a neon banana, I'd install a green frog, they'd ask me why that I asked them in the first place, because obviously I didn't care what they wanted, right? So, so we had a candid conversation about what we didn't want to be doing, and then I said, but if we have these conversations and you tell me these stories, I can extract design principles and aesthetic preferences that can be shared with the selection committee at Google. And to be honest with you, this was a, an experiment. I had not done mm -hmm. this before, but I, I always make up a new something to do. And, um, and, and this, this idea that, that you demonstrate, you asked me to tie this to the 10 principles and you demonstrate the 10 principles. I'm not looking up the 10 principles and saying, how do I do the 10 mm -hmm. principles? But just like Larry did, we can look at something like that and say, there was participation, you know, there was an opportunity for people to express, to self-express. There was communal effort, there was civic involvement. You know, you begin to see how the value system and doing things in ways that are authentic are meaningful. And if you'll just allow me this coda, what I'll say is that yeah. people told stories of, can't leave the cliffhanger, what did they say? Um, <laughs> People told stories of like, I hung out under a juniper bush with my friends and watched the people go by. And I hung out at the wall at the basketball court. I didn't want to play, but I wanted to be near people, but not with people. And so we were able to say, okay, people want sort of social proximity without the requirement to engage. And then other this other young man said, I used to walk out my back door and there was a, my yard, then there was a field, then there was a forest. And by the time I couldn't see the street lights or the power lines, I knew I needed to turn around and come back or I'd get lost. And this other woman said, oh, I used to walk along the Jersey Shore and I would measure myself by the water towers and know where I was and when I should turn around. So from that, you get verticality and wayfinding and space. And then other people talked about, I used to ride my bike down the creek bed, through the tunnel, out the other side, and there was the schoolyard. I had a secret passage and somebody else was like, yeah, I used to walk along the railroad tracks and then, you know, through a different tunnel and on the other side was a park. And so this idea of discovery and not having everything be obvious. And so I could hear those stories and use, you know, big pieces of white paper and sort of draw and illustrate either. I can't draw stick figures only, but mm -hmm. No, and but to let them know visibly that like I am hearing you 
and I am able to reflect back to you what are the design principles that you're asking for, and then they could validate that, in fact, that was true. And the special bonus of this experience is that it turns out when people talk about where they went when they were kids and what they loved about it, it makes them happy. Yeah. (laughs) It was was not an unhappy public hearing. It was really fantastic. Yeah, and it sounds joyous. It sounds like, I mean, there is a virtuous circle, isn't there, between, you know, that kind of rich, you know, those diverse inputs leading to richer outputs. And did you find then in terms of the guidelines and then the work above and beyond, were people more likely to get involved? Did the agency that you inspired in those meetings, did that continue in the way the project was then delivered? And and do people love it more now, do you think? Because well, we're still under construction, so I certainly hope that that will be the end result. I think it will be. We also did some um, human-centered design workshops and used found objects and let people create maquettes and so forth. And all of these things were brought into the selection committee at Google um, so that a closed-door session had the presence of the community in the room. And that was another thing that I said to the community, like, I can carry you with me into these conversations. And the people at Google were super, super committed to um, listening and being responsive. And they themselves were very attracted to similar qualities because again, this kind of objectifying of the corporate and the community as if these are not comprised of often the same people um, is an unfortunate way to think about the way we're going around, um, going about development. and. So I would say that I think that the selected works were a successful representation of what people wanted. And Google actually did get some favorable letters from people saying they really appreciated and enjoyed the process, which in and of itself was also a win, right? So as a developer, if you if you can evidence that the community is responding favorably in spite of whatever challenges you may be facing, and there are many when it comes mm-hmm. to development, um, it's that's positive as well. I wanted, I think one thing that I've always been fascinated about what you do, and the bit that I think is is quite striking, and maybe people won't realize this is it's what Burning Man has moved from was is, is a desert festival to actually talking about cities and having an incredibly strong view on the future of the city. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how that began, because I think a lot of people won't know about that transition. It comes out of the sort of creative community of San Francisco, the alternative art scene, the sort of probably, you know, roots of um, exploration around alternative systems of living and and so forth. But in the end, it was some people getting together to burn a man on the beach. And what they experienced was once they did that, other people joined them and then more people joined them. And so there's a way that people choose to come together Mm. around an experience that's natural. And it's endemic and we talk about immersive experiences today as if that's a brand new thing 
And yet anyone who spent time in cultures, especially outside of the Western European norm, know that culture is deeply grounded in food and music and participation and dance. I mean, I spent time in Chile when I was a little girl and everyone picked up a maraca or a guitar or sang, you know, so, so this kind of space in which people come together, which we might also name as public space and participate is, I think, intrinsic to uh, humanity when humanity is fully able to connect and to express. So they come together in the beach in San Francisco, they move out to the desert when they outgrew the regulatory environment of their initial gathering. There's this vast expanse in the desert and we get to retrospectively look at what happens when people have entirely a blank slate and permission. Yeah. So a new city every year then? And a new city every year. And so in the late 90s, initially, it was very um, beautiful and rowdy and rambunctious and fabulous and full of permission and wild self-expression. And then it again, you know, became necessary to make some some decisions about city planning. And I, uh, you know, Larry Harvey, the founder, the initial founder of Burning Man has written fairly extensively about the irony that they then became the municipality um, and the regulatory body, if you will. And so with that began in the late 90s, the sort of urban planning and making critical decisions about width of the streets, about a circular design that was an open crescent and then opened out into the vast desert with artwork going, you know, miles out and uh, small plazas in interstitial spaces and a central, you know, place where the man is at the center of what is a clock. And so everything is based on the hours of the clock um, and then the letters of the alphabet. And each year there's a different theme, but this grounding of of the place um, that is circular, that allows for navigation that becomes intuitive after a bit Um, the opportunity to be open-ended and exploratory. And you have this profound environment of humans being co-creative and learning by doing and iterating. So there's space for change year over year, being very transparent about what happened and what is learned. And the community now really owns and, and holds the space. Yeah. Do you think it's the, the one of the reasons the Silicon Valley community is so fascinated by Burning Man is you are perpetually in a field test. You know, it is a beta city and you're you know, you talk about iteration, you talk about constantly learning. I mean, that sounds to me like the way you know software is developed and yet you're doing it at a city scale. I mean, what do you think about that or is that too simplistic? I don't think it's too simplistic, but I think that people tend to objectify groups of people as others in some way. So now we can name Silicon Valley, or now we can name artists, or now we can name 
you know, capitalists or the bourgeoisie or the proletariat, you know, like this naming convention may miss the common ground of human connection and the ways in which permission to alter your environment and to see it as a social construction that you can contribute to is so powerful that whether you're making software or making a city or making a piece of art, you're transcending some of the limitations that may be socially imposed on us typically. Tell me then, there was a point where, because I find, of course, in plan and particularly in any student of architecture would enjoy the fact that, you know, so many utopian ideas of city will often begin as circles, but also fundamental to your city are your 10 principles, aren't there? There are, there are, there are guidelines, there are values behind everything you do. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, I think it's important to not try to create a theology out of it. You know, it's that that, uh, over time, people from all around the country and around the world were coming to Burning Man and they were experiencing something so outside of their normal reality, but not in a sense that it felt like it took them outside of themselves, but more in a sense that it brought it back to themselves. So many people refer to going to Black Rock City as going home. And I think the home is not so much the literal place as that they find that self inside of themselves and the ability to explore what that's all about. So it isn't a a kind of imposed system, but when people came and they wanted to think about how to replicate and how to create other events, and today there are over 90 other Burning Man events around the world in more than 30 countries. So, you know, there were questions about what is this and how do you do it? And again, Larry Harvey chose not to create a dictum, but rather a reflection And he went uh, to Mexico City, actually, and he sat and he thought and he reflected on what is it that was occurring. And so from that came the 10 principles. The principles include gifting, participation, um, civic involvement, communal effort, radical self-reliance, Uh, immediacy, decommodification, all of these 10 principles refer to his observations of what was taking place, that if you held to those things in another context, then you could replicate the human experience that people were wanting to have. I was talking to a developer, a wonderful man called Roger Madeline, the other day, uh, who's responsible for King's Cross in London and now Canada Water. And a lot of what he talks about is the program, the importance of a rich but open platform, one that leaves space for small businesses, startups, local and independent. And if anything, he's talking about a story that's as much about development of time and that he's inhabiting the time well spent of the neighborhood rather than getting lost in where the red line begins and ends. And I think, I imagine you'd be very sympathetic to that more programmatic approach to place. Oh, most definitely. And I'm reminded as you talk about him of Emmanuel Haas at Semaest in Paris, who um, works with the city of Paris to capitalize these small artisanal projects and redevelop spaces and create 
uh, incubators for, you know, cultural practice that is also business. And I think that's a really key thing to think about post-pandemic when we've seen our social spaces, our so-called third spaces, the cafes, the restaurants, the nightlife, like eviscerated financially. And so we can, I think, combine a recovery strategy with a creative stimulus strategy yeah. around places in really powerful ways. Yeah. Well, I think that richness in terms of that mix of activities, I mean, in Britain, I'm sure it's the same in America, you know, a lot of our department stores, a lot of our shopping malls are going out of business. They're therefore leaving extraordinary spaces on the high street, often with a you know great big atrium through the centre. And to be a department of different stories, to have that as your incubator space, it isn't just about workplace, but with a mix of activities that can change over time strikes me as so much of what you're talking about. It should begin with the sharing of stories and then one could start to imagine the ideal mix of uses from there. I think. Yes, and you're um, sparking my imagination around the, it, you know, people are talking a lot about migrant communities and refugee communities and sort of these uh, almost as if it's like a only a problem to deal with. And I think about um, Karin Lechberg in Stockholm at Subtopia, at, well, it's just outside of um, Stockholm and Alby, and she's made such an important case about the benefit to Sweden of the migrant and refugee populations. And so when you think about those spaces you were just talking about, can you imagine if you were uh, giving the opportunity of a small amount of cop capital and a location for the merchants and makers and yeah. and you know food purveyors and who knows what kinds of talents and capabilities are coming across our borders if we created these use these spaces as vehicles for um, capitalizing the small industry in those side of those populations like suddenly you could have this kind of burst of possibility and yeah, maybe I'm being overly simplistic and utopian, but that's what what you just said made me think of. Well, no, I I think well, there's a wonderful there's a high street in northern England, uh, Stockton on Tees, where the council there were there were department stores that were going out of business ten years ago, and the council bought them up and turned them into what they was called they're calling them enterprise arcades, which is exactly this. It's the med you know it's the classical agora, it's the medieval market but they're running it. And I think the important thing is there's a council there that is, there is, they are being commercially astute over the long term, but most importantly, they're being socially useful every day and they've got the balance right. And I think, I hope we're gonna see more of that. I thank you for mentioning that because this is the other piece, right? Like you said earlier, this kind of, what if I could do things the way I wanted them to be done or, you know, uh, make things possible. And this is where we get into the regulatory bodies and the roles of the municipality. And, you know, I've worked in, in several cities in the United States and frequently there are not policies for sort of creative spaces. There are only things for long-term permanent installation. So you run into like excessive costs and fees and you know problems with trying to do things that are more ephemeral or temporary or tests or can be iterated on so the sort of ways in which we think about policy and i 
believe I mentioned to you when we spoke the other day that the city of Bologna has this kind of public contract with its citizens where you can apply for city money to directly impact public spaces around you. And it's a sort of less formal, less regulatory contractual environment that allows for direct action on the part of citizens. And this feels super, super important. And then Charles Landry, who I mentioned as, you know, sort of starting to be known in the early 2000s has been more recently enamored of the ideas of what he calls creative bureaucracy and how, you know, working inside of bureaucracy with people who become the agents of change because they're given enough authority to go along with their responsibility that they can actually influence outcomes. And so when you talk about this enterprise arcade, which is a beautiful a beautiful idea. Uh, it reflects that there was a willingness on the part of the local municipality to be creative in their approach um, to this vacant space, and that's a that is a phenomenal, phenomenal situation. Yeah, I, and I'll send you some links. I think you'd love it. And it's it's so interesting this in terms of this sort of conversation around well soft power that's so critical to this is the language we use. And that a vision, it doesn't need to be an all singing, all dancing strategy, but there needs to be, you know, those words backed up with something that can relate to licensing and planning and regeneration. So you're, you're you know, you're, you're playing the bureaucracy at its own game, but leaving lots of lovely holes like a big creative Edam cheese that other people can fill. And that seems to be the key to it, doesn't it? You don't over curate, but you do facilitate. Would you agree and with that? That would be, I think, the best way to describe Burning Man. Right. That is exactly what Burning Man does. It creates an environment, it creates a platform, it facilitates possibility, it supports with, you know, training and learning and, you know, infrastructure. But in the end, it is the participants who are able to bring what it is that they want to give to each other and they do it together. And um, that is the magic that we see year over year yeah. in the desert. Well, Kim, I really appreciate your time. And I think to learn from Black Rock City for what it might mean for all of our cities is incredibly valuable. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Free Thinking Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Kim, this first in a new series. Now, next up is Mark Bourgeois, Managing Director of Hammerson, UK and Ireland. He talks about creating city quarters, how far the rich mix of mixed use might take the future city centre and the importance of return on experience. All wonderful stuff. Do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are and do leave us a comment so we can get better and better. Thank you and see you soon.